hello and welcome to the Rooted Living Podcast, a weekly dose of magic exploring eating and living more intuitively, hosted by me, Pandora Paloma, an intuitive living coach and founder of Rooted London. I am on a mission to change the way we talk and think about bodies, weight and food. I know that when we change how we are living, we can transform our relationship with food. This podcast explores self-love, female empowerment, body neutrality, and eating and living intuitively. Welcome to Rooted Living. Today, I am so unbelievably thrilled to have my first guest on the podcast, Dr. Anita Johnston. She is an eating disorder pioneer, a storyteller, and author of one of my favourite books, Eating in the Light of the Moon, which explores using metaphors and storytelling to support and transform our relationship with food. We discuss the differences between being physically and emotionally full, the binge purge pattern, themes of restriction, food and metaphors, and the skills that are required to be learned in order to overcome disordered eating, such as assertive communication and compassionate curiosity. I hope you enjoy the next 40 minutes. And if you do, please rate and review in the relevant sections of your podcast app. If you want to know more about me and my work, you can find me at www.rootedlondon.com or at Rooted London on Instagram. Thank you for listening. Welcome, Anita. Thank you for joining me. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Brilliant. Well, we might as well just get cracking. Um, I would love for you to introduce um, yourself and the work that you do. Well, I do a lot of different things. So uh, there is the book, uh, Eating in the Light of the Moon. And then I have an online workbook for that called The Light of the Moon Cafe and uh, some other online programs. Uh, so some are self-study, some are interactive, where we have a forum with women from all over the world, and I'm on that forum every day chatting with people. And I also do a lot of different workshops, soul hunger workshops, or uh, workshops called Four Faces of the Feminine Psyche. I, um, I do a lot of speaking and professional training, and then I'm the clinical director of uh, eating disorder program in Hawaii. We have a residential facility uh, on Maui called Aipono Maui. So I'm, I'm juggling a lot of different balls and doing uh, different things. I, I work remotely with individuals all over the world who are trying to unscramble uh, whatever they're eating difficulty or body image struggle might be. Wow. <laughs> you keep yourself busy. <laughs> I do. <laughs> um, I've read your, your book over and over and I recommend it to lots of clients. Um, I'd love to know a little bit more about how you came up with the, the concept of sort of using myths and metaphors and stories as a way to sort of try and transform our relationship with food. Well, it's a long story. I, I, I look back and now every time I am asked that question, I start to see things a little, a little differently. So way back when, I, I'm from the island of Guam. I'm Chamorro. And uh, for people that don't know where that is, if you were to draw a line between Japan and then go through uh, and New Guinea, Australia, and then a, a line across between Hawaii and the Philippines, where those two lines intersect, that's where the island of Guam is. And I grew up in a multi-ethnic, multicultural family, extended family, where storytelling was, was used as a way to communicate important things. So I'm looking all the way back now, I'm going, oh, okay, I see where that started. And then um, my, my daughters went to Waldorf school and um, you call them Steiner schools, I yes. think. And, and, and in that way of teaching, everything is done through storytelling. And my girls would come home and they would say, oh, today we learned about Prince Division and Prince Multiplication. And I went, oh, I would probably know my times tables by now if, if that's the way I had learned them. And I was working, I had uh, a, a full practice working with individuals struggling with eating. And I started realizing that these were some very complex concepts, 
that are that are hard to understand, but if you put it in story form, uh, not only it, does it make it easier to understand, but it's way more lasting. And so I started using um, metaphors and stories to explain, for example, what to expect in the recovery process or, or how to get to the, the underlying issues. Because with working with um, eating uh, it, it struggles, it quickly becomes apparent that, yes, it's about food and it's not about food at the same time. So metaphor is the, is the perfect way to straddle those two things because with metaphor, you use one thing to describe another. So, um, and then I started getting feedback from clients and they wanted, they wanted, uh, to know if there was a book they could read about it. And I went, Hmm, not that I know of. And that's when I realized, well, I'll write this, this booklet for my clients. And, uh, over a period of 10 years, it grew into a book. Wow. And did you always know that you would do this work? No, I um I was all I always knew that I would work with women, women's issues. I, the the culture I grew up in was matrilineal and so and I grew up with very strong uh women leaders within my family. And so I was always fascinated by that and fascinated by the cross-cultural issues and it wasn't until I was uh, supervising a graduate student in Hawaii who was doing her doctoral dissertation on the incidence of eating disorders in Hawaii. And we would get together and we were joined by a third woman who was a social worker who had recovered herself from an eating disorder, but she had to figure it all out herself. And so the more we got together and talked, we kept saying, wow, there's a lot of people struggling here. There really needs to be a center for this. And after we said that for about the fifth time, <laughs> we looked at each other and laughed. And, and so we created a center. And, and what happened is it was one of those things that you create it and they come and girls and women of all ages, all ethnicities, all sizes, all shapes um, showed up. And so then I had to had to figure it out. And again, because uh, I'm a storyteller, uh, but I'm also as a psychologist, I'm a story listener. So I just started listening very, very carefully to their stories to see if I could figure out what was this? Why is it these these particular girls and women? First of all, why was it females? Because this is back in the early '80s. And so no males were showing up at the time. Why was it females? And why was it these particular girls and women? And why was the struggle around eating in the body? And so that's how I began this journey, uh, mustering as much curiosity as I could. And, and I'm still on it. I'm still asking those questions. Mm -hmm. I completely agree. It's, sometimes I feel a little bit like the story keeper. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I listen to the stories and I help them sort of, I love the word that you used, unscramble. Um, and so much of that sort of recovery process is sort of peeling away layers or, or mm -hmm. unscrambling things and putting it back into boxes that feel more manageable, in a sense. Uh -huh. Yeah, and actually what I found is changing perspective was really, really important because those that I was seeing were so filled with so much um, self-loathing and and guilt and shame that that my very first task was to to start to shift that and I remember I remember the moment that I was sitting across uh, from a, a, a woman and I came up with this this metaphor of how to how to begin to shift that and how to begin to um, show the way out and it's it's a metaphor now. It's become my favorite one because I get messages from all over the world from people saying, this helped me transform my perception and my understanding of what I was dealing with. Mm -hmm. So I'll be happy to share that with you if, if uh, your Absolutely, listeners. Please. So so with 
when you're using metaphor like this, you begin always with your imagination. So you imagine, imagine you're on the banks of a raging river. It's pouring down rain and you slip and you fall in and you're drowning. You're getting pulled down through the rapids and along comes a big log and you grab on the log and the log saves your life. It keeps you from drowning. And eventually it carries you to a place in the river where the water is calm. And from there you can see the riverbanks. But you can't get there because you're holding on so tightly to the log. So the irony is that the very thing that saved your life is now getting in the way of you getting where you want to go in life. And, and this is an important concept for me because make no mistake about it, the struggle with eating um, has served a, a function and a very important function. And it would behoove you to see what that function is. Um, it has kept you afloat in some uh, emotionally turbulent times. But <laughs> to make it more complicated, there's always someone on the riverbank yelling, let go of the log, let go of the log. And you feel like an absolute idiot because you can't let go of that log, especially if that person is someone who loves you more than life itself, or maybe they're the top expert in, in the country. And, and so what I believe, though, is that letting go of that log may not be the best thing to do initially. Because what happens if you do? You let go, start to swim to shore, get halfway there and realize, oh, shoot, I don't have the strength to make it. Well, that means you don't have the strength to make it back to the log either. And you're really sunk. Mm -hmm. So I believe that we all have a wise part of ourselves that will not, will not let us let go of anything until we're good and ready. And so what do you do instead? Well, let go of the log and try floating. And when you start to sink, you grab back on. And then you let go of the log and you practice treading water. And when you get tired, you grab back on. And then you let go of the log and you swim around it once, grab back on. Twice, grab back on. Ten times, a hundred times, two hundred times. Whatever it takes for you to have the strength and confidence to make it to shore, then you let go. So essentially, you you basically put the struggle out of a job. Mm, I love that so much. Um, something my partner says to me a lot in the work mm -hmm. that we do, and we you know we're here to serve to help. Um, and he always says to me, sweetheart, you can't push people to enlightenment. Um, they have to be ready. And it's I find it fascinating. You know, so many people that I've worked with, and I'm sure maybe you you feel the same, but. You know, they've, they've listened, they've heard things I've done, they've watched a lot, you know, an Instagram live. And then a few months later, they, they get in contact. And it's like, you've just said something that has made them go, okay, I'm ready now. Because like you're talking about, you know, the letting go, you can't just rip that plaster off. You know, mm -hmm. it has to take, you know, all, all, when it comes to our relationship with food and our body, so many deep rooted things need to be nurtured and uncovered in a really uh, manageable process. Um, you know, you can't just rip that plaster off just like you can't just let go of that log. Well, and there's skills too. So one of the things that I found um, with working with, with girls and women over the years is that those who typically who struggle are uh, very emotionally sensitive and highly intuitive individuals. Now, the way I see it, those are fabulous qualities um, because I think if, if more of our world leaders had those qualities, there'd be more compassion and empathy and, and um, it, it could be a better world. But there is a problem if you are what I call thin skin, which, which that means that you really feel things deeply and what might be no big deal to someone else penetrates your very bones. And if you're born that way, and, and they are innate qualities that, that you're born with, um, the problem is that we live in a world that values being thick-skinned, right? Water off a duck's back, no big deal that, you know, get over it. You're too sensitive. You're overreacting and puts out all those kinds of messages. So what happens is that the individual thinks, well, there must be something wrong with me, which I believe is the underlying belief system of all of these struggles. 
So, but the problem is if you're born that way, uh, in, in, you're born thin skinned into a thick skinned world, there are certain skills that you need in able to, to make your way so that all that nonsense out there, and there's a lot of nonsense, doesn't penetrate. It doesn't affect you uh, in a way that, that um, is painful or a struggle. So th- the idea being that a person that is thin-skinned really needs to learn how to set boundaries with other people. Uh, assertive communication, I've seen thousands over these years, 35 years of, of individuals who have totally, completely freed themselves with the struggles. Mm, but I've never seen anyone that has done it without developing assertive communication, which is, it's a skill. It's like learning to ride a bike or drive a car or swim uh, that anyone can learn, but it does take some practice of identifying and accepting and expressing your feelings in a way that honors your experience and honors the experience of the other person. So for me, that's been like, that's been one of the skills that's absolutely essential. You don't need some magic DNA. You can mm-hmm. learn this. And so much of the, the recovery process is is learning that new way of thinking or new way of being. Um, I explained to you earlier, you know, and I know that you do feel, you know, very much the same, that so much of it is the living and, you know, addressing where we are mm-hmm. living and where we're no, not really living or feeling satisfied. You know, there's such a big difference between being full and being satisfied, um, you know, with food and and life. Um, so, you know, it is just this sort of journey, isn't it, really? Right. And I think you you, you tapped on something about the living and, and in your work, because honestly, the struggles are are really about hunger and that we all hunger for certain things, right? We, we are, as human beings, we hunger for a sense of belonging and, and, and connection. And what, what happens for many people is uh, they, they feel terribly lonely, not simply because they're not connected with other people, but because they're not connected with themselves. And again, we live in a culture that does not teach us how to be emotionally literate, for example, how to connect with that part of our inner guidance system that really is there to let us know what's okay and what's not okay with us, but but we don't learn how to work with it. And it, it does get scrambled up in so many other things because we confuse those other hungers with physical hunger. And, and so the metaphor that I use to help people understand the difference is to imagine, okay, we begin with the imagination again, imagine two tanks, tank A and tank B. Now, tank A is the tank you fill when you're physically hungry and you fill it with food. Tank B is the tank you feel when you are emotionally or spiritually hungry and you fill it with things like attention, affection, appreciation, meditation, prayer, and so on. But what happens is that we get the two tanks confused and we think there's just one tank. So before we know it, tank A is full and overflowing and we're still hungry or we don't even want to get close to tank A because we're afraid it's a bottomless pit. And so what, what has to happen is, is you have to tease the two tanks apart and be able to differentiate the difference between physical hunger and those other hungers, those non-physical hungers. And the first step for doing this is really proprioceptive or interoceptive awareness, which is simply body awareness, learning to tune in and identify your hunger and satiety signals uh, as sensations in the body, right? I feel like pizza is not a physical sensation. Um, So we're talking about learning how to recognize a contraction or an expansion or a heaviness or a lightness or roughness or smoothness or hollowness or density uh, as a signal for either hunger or fullness in Mm -hmm. the body. 
this is difficult for many of us because most of us have been raised to disregard those signals, right? We've been taught that to, to be a member of the clean play club or or that we can't have dessert until we've eaten the full meal or or then there's those poor children starving somewhere, China or Africa or whatever. And so we're really taught to, to disregard those signals. And so it's a matter of really, that's what is called intuitive eating. I like to call it instinctual eating. But it's really learning to respond to your physical hunger by recognizing sensation in the body that will that will um, help you understand when to eat and when to stop eating and so on. And so often I'll, I'll work with somebody quite a long time on that, uh, learning those signals. And but then, um, if somebody has learned, okay, I know, I know my hunger and satiety signals, and here I am reaching for the pizza, and I've learned interoceptive awareness. I check in, not a hunger signal in sight, but I still want to eat that pizza. Well, here we go, because the way I see it is that means you've just tumbled down Alice in Wonderland's rabbit hole, and you've landed smack dab in tank B. And in tank B, you enter the world of metaphor, because pizza is not pizza. Food is not food. What is it? It's a concrete physical symbol of another kind of hunger that you're experiencing and probably don't even know about. So, and the good news is that the food itself is coded to let you know what that hunger is, but you have to crack the code because it's not speaking in in our regular everyday language. So the way you crack the code, and and, um, there are certain categories that, help you get started with, with the metaphoric language. And um, sweet foods typically have to do with either feeling like there's not enough sweetness in your life or you're not sweet enough. Crunchy, salty foods are, are typically associated with unexpressed anger and frustration. Warm foods like soups and stews are usually connected to a craving for emotional warmth. Spicy foods are often connected to a desire or a fear of change, excitement, or stimulation in your life. And chocolate, well, we know this from Valentine's Day. That's mm-hmm. sensuality, sexuality, and romance. <laughs> so if anyone is interested in learning more about this, I have a free gift where you, you can download a PDF. Um, and by going to lightofthemooncafe.com, forward slash p-a-n for pandora <laughs> that's brilliant that's what my partner calls me actually pal <laughs> well there we go so what yeah so what happens though is so here's an example of how this works i i was working with a, a woman she was struggling with bulimia and um she i said to her i said okay if there were one food that you wished you could eat and have absolutely no consequences, no consequences whatsoever, what would that food be? And she said, oh, it would be vanilla ice cream with strawberries on top. So I said, okay, so I want you to imagine that I've never had vanilla ice cream with strawberries on top, and you're going to tell me what's so fabulous about it. And she said, well, it's sweet, it's smooth, and it's refreshing. So when we took a look at what was going on in her life at the time, her boyfriend was accusing her of not being sweet enough. She had hit a rough patch with her parents and was desperately wanting things to smooth out. And she was in a dead-end job in need of a refreshing change. So one food, you know, six months, (laughs) six months of work, all right there embedded in the food. And, And sometimes it's even in the it's in the language so for example i i was working with a, a young woman w- remotely she was in actually she was in london at the time and she was working for a uh high tech uh starter company and whenever we would meet, she was typically running late. I'd be getting texts, say, okay, I'm on the train. I'm almost there. And, and we would come into a, a session and her hair would be flying and, and she's just kind of out of breath. And 
So one session, she said, oh, my gosh, you're going to have to really help me. I just binged. Uh, and I'm just so upset. And I said, well, when did you binge? And he said, last night. And I said, great, because now we can really unpack that fairly, fairly quickly. And I said, so, so what was going on? She goes, oh, well, it was a really stressful day. Uh, we were doing this crowd uh, funding and, um, um, if we didn't make our goal, the company was going to fold. And I went, okay, that's stressful. So I, I said, so did you make your goal? And she said, we did. I said, did you know that at the time you binge? She said, no. And I said, okay, so what do you binge on? And she goes, oh, it's usually something sweet, but I'm so embarrassed to say this, but I, I always put ketchup on everything. And I said, ketchup. Oh, okay. So I said, so what happened after after you made the goal? Did did the company celebrate? And she goes, oh no, 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 no. Our boss said, oh no, we had to start moving very quickly because then we we had to get onto the next thing and get it and get it done. And I went, oh, so you're always trying to catch up. (laughs) (laughs) And that was the theme of her life. Now, here's what happens is when you can pop the metaphor, when you can find what it is, um, it's funny. That's how you know you've hit the mark. And, And it's funny because it takes something that has been unconscious and brings it into consciousness. And there is, it's not just enlightening in terms of uh, illumination, but also in terms of levity. All of a sudden it lightens up. And and when that happens, she's never going to be able to eat ketchup again without that level of consciousness. And in order for disordered eating to continue, you have to be unconscious. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's such a so so true and such a lovely sort of description of of actually the you know the the way that we eat and actually how it does have such an impact Mm -hmm. um you know there's this idea of you know how do you want food to make you feel and I always talk about you know there's a reason for the seasons you know we have the Mm -hmm. the root vegetables the soups stews in the Mm -hmm. in the winter months because of course it's cold outside and we are craving Mm -hmm a sense of warmth and the feelings of warmth you know um and yeah I just absolutely you know and in the summer we obviously have the yang of the sun so it's normal or you know more normal for us to choose a lighter food something sort of crunchy and fresh and um you know we there is a reason that we have the seasons but of course you know there's always a reason behind the food that we're choosing yeah right it's and it's but it's hard to find. I mean, otherwise people would have you know cleared their struggle you know a long time mm-hmm. ago, right? So so uh, the idea that there's meaning, but often deep meaning, and and I think part of how I I got on this path is when I was a young graduate student. Uh, my first class that I walked into, uh, there was a little old man in front and he was talking and he was speaking in a a pretty thick accent. So I had to kind of talk to myself to say, I need to listen carefully. Uh, He's speaking English. Um, And that man was Viktor Frankl, who wrote a a groundbreaking book called Man's Search for Meaning, probably one of the most powerful books I'd ever read. I didn't know that 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 was him. And he was a psychiatrist uh, during World War II in the Nazi prison camps. And he... um, Basically, his book, Man's Search for Meaning, was that you can be stripped of everything, everything that has ever been held dear to you, but there's one thing that can never be taken away from you, and that's the meaning that you give to your experience, and in that meaning lies your freedom. And so um, this is what I found is with people struggling, once they could get that there's meaning, often deep meaning to what they're doing with food and how they're doing whatever they're doing. And it's not that there's simply, you know, there's something wrong with them, but there's a part of themselves that's even larger than, than their, our normal everyday, you know, waking self that is really trying to communicate something. But because it can't talk the way we talk with words in the way we use words, it's through metaphoric language, and then they can get to that meaning, um, and they can see, yeah, so it's, it's, it, it has to do with the seasons that we live in, but it also has to do with um, the, um, what would you call it, the, the landscape of our mm-hmm. psyches or 
the um, inner weather that we that we are experiencing all, all yeah. the time. So just getting going deeper and deeper and deeper. And what I've found is that it, it, that struggles with eating a negative body image, they're they're like a a weed. If you just cut it off at the top, given the right circumstances, it's coming right back. But if you can go down and get to those root issues, it's a done deal, done, finished, uh, recovered. Period. So that's what's so exciting for me about you know going deep. And yeah, sometimes it's a little scary, but it's mm, worth it. Mm, absolutely, and I think. You know, if you, it's it's what I was saying earlier about, you know, you have to be ready. Um, but when you have that sense of, okay, I'm here and this is, you know, I'm going to do this. It's, that's really where the magic happens. It's being able to, to see that, you know, the darkness for what it is, but be able to see that light at the end of the tunnel. And um, I've been doing a 12 days of Christmas. I've offered up 12 hours of my time throughout December to offer 24, 30 minute sessions with, you know, people that follow mm-hmm. me on on Instagram and as part of my newsletter and mm-hmm. it's been amazing just the last couple of days you know opening up that space for communication between you know people and and I have found that you know there's that one question that I've asked with a couple of people and I've opened something up and you know there's tears and it's like this is good you know this is this is where the magic is is starting from so yes. don't be afraid of really feeling into that emotion because this is this is the starting point now and it's you know it's I think it's easier for me to obviously know this having been on my own journey and and working with women who I see from the beginning and you know see transformed um at the end but that really is where you know the magic could start from yeah I think I want another skill is cultivating compassionate curiosity so it really it really matters the way in which you ask the question. So so you can say to yourself, why did I do that? Or you can say, huh, why did I do that? And and when we talk to ourselves, uh, and I was reading something that said, you know, our conversation with ourselves uh, is is um, the most conversation we'll ever have in our entire lives, right? All those conversations within our mind. And so when you can learn to question yourself uh, pretty much the way you would you know a child if if you said to a a, a child why do you do that you're not going to get an honest answer you, you you know they're going to tell you what they think you want to hear or or come up with the best excuse they can come up with but if you ask that very same question why'd you do that with compassionate curiosity the answer you get will amaze you and and so it is with ourselves so developing a skill of just being really curious really curious about you know um uh our thoughts for example um not to believe every thought that comes up but really to watch them like clouds in the sky if i believed every thought that came up in my mind i'd be totally insane i have some ridiculous thoughts i also have some entertaining thoughts and some loving thoughts but i get to choose which of those thoughts are going to be keepers Mm. um and i to to really do the same with my emotions so i i think watching our thoughts is really important with curiosity and then learning to ride the waves of our emotions because though our emotions are it's energy it's emotion energy in motion and much like the waves in in the ocean uh, or sound waves or any other kind of waves, they come in, they peak and they pass. They come in, they peak and they pass. But what happens is because we live in an emotionally illiterate culture, we're not taught how to ride the waves. And so as soon as a, as a feeling starts to come up, we, we judge it and then we do something to either stuff it with food or we try to restrict it by not eating or we try to run from it by exercise addiction or I mean there's all sorts of things that we do um, in an attempt to stop what is a natural flow of emotion through us through our psyches through our bodies and and if we can just be with it it will pass. And, and, and then again, uh, another one will come and you ride that and it too will pass. And so uh, developing a different way of relating to our 
thoughts and our emotions rather than thinking we have to do something to squash them. But be curious and write them. Absolutely. I talk a lot about creating a, a safe space for communication with that inner. Mm. No, it's why, why do you allow it to be a one way conversation? You know, talk back. Mm-hmm. Hey, be curious. Mm-hmm. Why are you thinking this? Why are you saying these things? Um, and, you know, op- just open up a, a safe space so that, you know, the conversation mm-hmm. can be can be two way and that you can actually really honor that communication. And I think I think what you're saying is so important because I believe that it always needs to be a dialogue, never a mm. monologue, especially when dealing with negative body image. And and so what this looks like, for example, first of all, um, when I work with people struggling with eating, typically the body image issues are the bookends. It's the first to show up and the last to leave. Because we're up in a David and Goliath kind of situation with a culture that has given a very narrow definition of what we're supposed to look like. And if we don't look like that, then there's something wrong with us. And so that's everywhere. That's like, we're like, uh, like fish in, in the ocean, uh, with the culture being the ocean. It's, it's, there's no escaping it. However, what does help you from being impacted by it is consciousness, right? Awareness. And so an an example of what this looks like, I was going on, um, getting ready to go on a a trip to give a talk, interestingly enough, on on negative body image. And I'm going through the checkout line in the, in the store, getting my little, you know, my little travel, uh, uh, tiny toothpastes and, and shampoos and that sort of thing. And as I'm going through the checkout line out of the corner of my eye, I see, this image of uh, a woman in a, a beautiful airbrushed uh, belly <laughs> with a bikini. You'll need to unlock Oops. your iPhone first. <laughs> Sorry mm-hmm. about that. And that was Siri. She just came on. She heard me talking. Sorry about that. That's that's not the dialogue I'm referring <laughs> to. <laughs> it's supposed to be internal, but nowadays with technology, it gets externalized. So anyhow, so I'm going through the 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 uh, grocery the line, and I'm and I see this image, and what pops up in my mind, and this is how it happens, and it's important to understand this. It, it happens. Oh, I wish I had a body and belly like that. Now, because I know that billions of dollars are being spent to capture my attention in that way, I'm ready for it, and so. As soon as I heard that thought, I noticed that thought, I was ready for it with, with another thought. And I went, well, Anita, um, there was a time that you had um, a belly kind of like that. You were pretty young. Uh, how, how did you like your body back then? Oh, I, I, I didn't. I thought my butt was too big or, you know, there's all kinds of things that were where my skin was not clear enough, all kinds of stuff. But you see, the pressure is intense. And so then another thought pops up that says, yeah, but um, I, I, I would really appreciate it if I had that body now. And so I have to say to myself then, well, you carried and gave birth to two amazing girls. Would you trade that for a belly like that? Well, no, of course not. But then that, that, that does, the pressure doesn't stop because then the thought comes up, Oh, but think of all the cool clothes I could wear. And that's when I know I have to bring in the big guns. And so for me, uh, I have this thought that I bring in that says, okay, how do you think your 80-year-old self would like the body you have now? (laughs) She would like it very much. So so it's a process. Now, mind you, by the time I got to the the counter, um, I had already been through this process in my mind. And... And then I saw that, you know, this magazine was a uh, uh, Sports Illustrated swimwear uh, edition. It, was the, it had been flipped backwards. And, and, and I realized, okay, wow, you were just had, um, but for, for just a couple minutes, this didn't last hours and days and weeks of me feeling bad about the way I looked because I was ready to have a dialogue with the thoughts mm-hmm. that popped up. Absolutely. And I think it's, um, I think it's really important that for anyone who does this work is open and honest that of course, we have these thoughts too, you know, 
Um, the idea of, of body love is one thing. I don't love my body every day. Sometimes I get frustrated, mm-hmm. but I accept it for what it is. And, you know, and, and as you said, you know, what it has given me, you know, I gave birth, what, eight and a half months ago. And I had all sorts of hormonal problems, mm-hmm. back acne, chin acne after she was born. Mm-hmm. And for me, it was very much about this is just a transition, you know, I accept that my body is changing. Um, and I think it's, yeah, I think it's really worth us being open and honest that, of course, we feel these things and, you know, think these things too. Mm-hmm. And, and and it it honestly, it never ends. So you might as well get the hang of this. I do these uh, week-long uh, professional trainings with uh, uh, Carolyn Costin and Francie White and uh women from around the world come who are people that are working in the field about about half of them have had their own recovery experience and that's how they they got into the field and I'll never forget this one woman she said you know I worked really hard really hard to clear my eating disorder and I did and then I started working on on my body image issues and now there's aging. (laughs) That's right, folks. (laughs) For any of us that are on the planet for any length of time, that's how it goes. So so it's really important to learn to have this, this dialogue of saying, okay, you know, you're in transition, or this is changing. And yes, this is what bodies do, and that this is part of it. And, and really learning to accept what it means to have a body on this planet Mm. that a lot comes with it (laughs) absolutely and it's a real gift um something that you uh something that you just said earlier was sort of the idea of running from things and exercise addiction and it's leading me to want Mm -hmm. to ask you about sort of what we're seeing now which is orthorexia so the obsession with being healthy Mm -hmm. and it's Mm -hmm. something I'm certainly seeing much more in my clients um, and I would love to know your thoughts on it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's complex, okay, because um, we are up against a food industrial complex that doesn't have our uh, best interests at heart. That There is a reality to that. So uh, that being said, though, what happens with orthorexia is orthorexia becomes when you channel your entire focus on, um, oh, no, I can't have that hummus if it's not in a, a glass container. Or, I mean, it becomes so, so, so restrictive. And then that serves the function of what I call the red herring. So the red herring is a, um, a term often used in literature, like, for example, in a whodunit mystery, who killed the old lady? Is it the maid, the butler, or the chauffeur? Mm. And everyone's following the story along and looking at the maid because she's weird. She's doing strange things. And and at the end of the story, there's a twist. And it turns out to have been the butler who nobody suspected because everybody's watching the maid. Well, the, the maid is the red herring in this instance. And with orthorexia, orthorexia is the red herring. It distracts you. If, 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 if there's an obsession about that, if there's, if there's uh, has to be perfection with every bite you put into your, into your mouth, now we've got a red herring and it's designed to distract you from other issues that may be coming up for you that are um, a, a little more complex or a little more difficult. So if you can say, well, if I can just eat, you know, exactly this way, then then everything's going to be fine. And so, um, I, the way I look at it is, again, if you're eating in a way that um, feels good and you're doing it because uh, it, it it you feel like it makes your cells sing, um, that's one thing. But if there's a lot of fear. I can't eat this because of that, or what's going to happen if I eat that? Um, or if it becomes extremely obsessional where everything has to be so precise, well, then that's disordered eating. That There's no freedom in that. Mm-hmm. I love that word freedom as well. I think, you know, for me and the work that I do, it's always about people finding freedom with food, you know, freedom with their bodies. Mm-hmm. Um Mm-hmm. And I think orthorexia is, um, I mean, I, I feel like I, within my journey, I, I had bulimia, but then I also had sort of orthorexia a few years down the line. And and mm-hmm. so I always felt that that was 
it was worse. I think with the bulimia, it was, you know, my mother, friend, close friends, they could see that I was struggling. Whereas with orthorexia, it was so masked. You know, I was almost praised because, yeah. oh, God, you're so healthy. And that for me mm-hmm. just fueled me mm-hmm. to sort of do it more. But in equal measures, it really um, sent me even deeper into that control spiral. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it is it, it is deceptive, which is what makes it such a great red yeah. herring, right? Uh, everybody gets distracted uh, by it and thinks, you know, and doesn't see what's really going on. And, and what I have found, because uh, I've been in this field now for <laughs> over 30 years, is, is I almost actually don't, and this sounds a little blasphemous, but I don't really even believe in eating disorders any longer. I, 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 they're more like life disorders. That's why I love um, you know, the work that you're doing, because that is the mm-hmm. antidote to it. So, so that someone struggling with anorexia or even orthorexia, um, basically what you're looking at is you're looking at a theme of restriction. So someone is not just restricting their food, they're restricting their feelings, they're restricting new experiences, they're restricting intimacy, that they they put themselves on restriction if they make a mistake. So you'll see this theme of restriction throughout their lives. And so it's really an issue around Mm. restriction. Uh, and, And someone often gets into restriction because life feels like just too much for them. So, so they have to restrict in order to cope. And, uh, and so if you see someone struggling with bulimia or yo-yo dieting, what you see is this, this binge purge pattern is everywhere where they will take in too much, too fast, more than they can assimilate and then get overwhelmed and have to get rid of it. So it's not just with food, but it's also with classes. They might sign up for a ton of classes and then drop out of school because it's too much. Or they might meet someone, fall madly in love. And as soon as there's a little glitch, oh God, I got to end the relationship. Or they they might take on a gazillion projects and then it's just too much and and they got to drop it all. Or, Or they meet a friend and the minute there's some kind of disagreement, they totally end the friendship. So, so you find that process, um, the binging and purging is everywhere. And, and with, with, um, people struggling with overeating or compulsive eating or binge eating, you find the theme of scarcity. So, so there's not just not enough food, but there's not enough time. There's not enough money. There's not enough attention. There's not, there's not enough whatever, or they're not enough. They're not good enough. They're not smart enough. They're not pretty enough. So, so when you start to look for these underlying patterns, what's really cool about it is that as you address the patterns, you're not just addressing what someone's doing with food. You're addressing this pattern in their whole of their lives. And when you, when you deal with that pattern in the whole of your lives, it affects their relationship with eating. And so it's really pretty cool because then you can get to what the real issues are and how they're, you know, how they get expressed. Absolutely. Oh, I feel like I could talk to you forever. (laughs) I'll try and sort of, you know, wind it up a little bit. I would love to know if there was one thing that you could, um, one piece of advice that you could give to women who face challenges with food or their body, sort of like a starting point. What would be? I would say there's nothing wrong with you. And, and, and to get to that place of discovering that there's nothing wrong with you to cultivate compassionate curiosity about whatever pops up in your life to really get curious oh how come how come I responded this way rather than automatically going to oh my god there's something wrong with me why did I do that Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely I love that be curious be you know um I love the idea curious and kind to yourself and and to (laughs) others you know I think there's there's so Mm -hmm. much in that that sort of, you know, inner child mentality of, but what is this? What are you saying? How does that work? You know, um, something that maybe we lose as we, as we, as we get older. Um, thank you so much, um, Anita. It's been an absolute pleasure 
talking with you. Um, please let everybody know where they can find you. Oh, okay. You can find uh, me at my website is Dr. 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 Anita Johnston.com or my online uh, platform, which is lightofthemooncafe.com. Wonderful. Um, and you mentioned something you um, you had offered us as a or, or the, the, yeah. the free gift. So so that's if you go to uh, lightofthemooncafe.com forward slash P-A-N, that'll take you to the Light of the Moon Cafe website. And there's a downloadable PDF that's called Food and Metaphor Guide. And so uh, you can get the, the guide that talks about the different foods and how to decode foods that you may struggle with, whether they're foods that uh, you might uh, eat when you're not hungry or maybe even not allow yourself to eat when you are hungry. But it's, a, it's an entry point to starting to look at that process metaphorically. And, um, and then you can get on my mailing list. I ha I send out uh, different metaphors during the week. Um, and uh, I do vlogs sometimes. And then I have uh, different courses that come up. I have Cracking the Hunger Code, which is a self-study course. And then I have the New Crescent Moon will be starting in February. And that's an interactive course where I'm on there every day for eight weeks. Um, on the forum, we have live calls and there's all kinds of activities, you know, and there's videos to watch and audios of lots of stories and metaphors. Amazing. Well, I will be sure to put those links in the bottom of the description. Um, thank you so much for your time. Um, and good luck with, with your journey. <laughs> <laughs> you too. Thank you so much for inviting me and thank you for all that you do to to bring awareness to um intuitive living. That's just such a such a great thing and and I, I think it's just so valuable for all women to know that you know the answers are inside of themselves and this is a way of tapping in, exactly. getting there. trust in that inner wisdom, you know. Yeah. Thank mm -hmm. you so much Anita. My pleasure. Bye-bye. Wow, what an incredibly inspiring woman Anita is. I hope you have enjoyed listening as much as I enjoyed recording that episode of the Rooted Living podcast. I definitely recommend checking out Anita's work and also her book, Eating in the Light of the Moon. I will share all of the links in the description of this podcast episode. Next week, I have another great special guest, so tune in and come and check it out. Have a great week.